0: Well, there's a book called A Spy and a Traitor, and it tells the story of a man called Oleg Gordievsky. Now, Oleg grew up in Russia just after the Second World War, and he was brought up to believe that communism was the absolute dream, it was the ideal. And so he joined the the KGB, and he was sent overseas to Copenhagen in Denmark, and he was sent to, to work in the Russian embassy there. But whenever Oleg arrived there, suddenly he found that his eyes were totally opened. Because he saw all of the freedoms and the prosperity and the choice that the people in Denmark had. And so he was able to, for the very first time, do lots of things that he wasn't able to do in Moscow. He enjoyed listening to classical music. He was reading Shakespeare, all sorts of things that before were totally forbidden to him. And so he was able to look back at his old life under the communist regime and see it then very, very differently. Instead of seeing it as a a utopia, he saw it as dark and oppressive and restrictive. And actually something very similar happens to us whenever we become Christians. Because you can look back on your old non-Christian way of life whenever you become a Christian and you see it for what it really is you're then able to see that it's actually dark and destructive. When you open your eyes, or your eyes are open to see the reality and the beauty of the good news of Jesus. i have this passage this morning that we're going to be looking at. This is effectively what Paul is saying. He says there's this old way of life that you once believed in and walked in, but now your eyes have been opened to a totally new way of living. And so this morning, we're going to first of all look at the causes of this old way of life, uh, this non-Christian way of life. Then we'll look at the results of this way of life. And then finally, we'll look at the contrast between the old way and the new way of life in Christ. So first then, the causes of the non-Christian life. Let's look at verse 17 and 18, if you have your Bibles open. Paul says this, You must no longer live, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now the first thing to notice here, really the thing that jumps off the page, is Paul's emphasis on the mind and on thinking. He says the Gentiles are futile in their thinking, they're darkened in their understanding, and they're ignorant. Now, we need to clarify at this point that when Paul says, do not live as the Gentiles do, he's not talking about people who just happen to not be Jewish. Specifically, he's talking about the non-Christian Gentiles. He's not rejecting people who aren't Jewish because only two chapters before in Ephesians 2, we read that there is now unity between Jews and Gentiles in the church. But for Paul's original audience in Ephesus, many of them came from a Gentile background. And so he's saying to them, don't go back into that old way of living that you once used to live whenever you were like your your Gentile brothers and sisters, just doing whatever came naturally to you. And when Paul says futile thinking, the question is, well, what does he mean by this? What does he mean? Because we know that not everything that non-Christians think is totally useless, There's a lot that we can learn from non Christian teachers and scientists and doctors and artists, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, we know that as Christians, we don't have a monopoly on the truth. There's a lot that non Christians can tell us. But Paul is saying here if you're not a Christian, you might be very knowledgeable about all sorts of things, but spiritually, you're totally blind. You're totally blind. You're darkened, he says, in your understanding. And we can see examples of that all around us, can't we? We just need to think of, for example, uh, the atheist scientist Richard Dawkins. He once said this, I've described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. Or you could think of the the comedian Stephen Fry. A few years ago, in an interview with RTE, he said that God was mean-minded, capricious, and stupid. Here are two very intelligent men. They're well-educated, they're well-informed on in all kinds of things. But spiritually, they're totally blind. They've chosen to ignore the reality of who God is, and so their understanding is darkened. What's really interesting here is that Paul doesn't say, okay, the problem is you're thinking, you're futile in your thinking, and so the, the answer is better education. What you need is, is more information to get into your, your heads. No, no. He, he says the root cause behind this futile thinking is in verse 18. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. When I was younger, I tried to learn how to play the guitar. I didn't get very far. I only learned about four chords. So I think Jimi Hendrix's legacy is still pretty safe. Uh, But when I was learning to play the guitar, and those of you who are much more experienced guitar players will know, whenever you're first learning, your fingertips are very sensitive, and so it's actually quite difficult to hold down the strings for a very long period of time, because what you need to do is develop a callus on your fingertips to harden them to to the strings. Well, Paul here uses the Greek word uh, parosis, which was a medical term to mean callus, And so he's effectively saying here, these these Gentiles, these non-Christians, have developed a callous on their hearts. They've hardened their hearts. And again, we need to understand that when Paul uses the word heart, it's quite different to the way that we tend to use it today. When we say, I love you with all my heart, it's, it's the kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. You might, once a year, Valentine's Day, hopefully more often than that. But, but once a year, especially on Valentine's Day, you, you, you give somebody a gift, a teddy bear, roses, whatever it might be. I love you with all my heart. But for Paul, it's quite different. It doesn't just mean your feelings and your emotions. It's your entire inner being. It's your thoughts. It's your will and your desires. So the ignorance here that Paul's describing, it separates these people from the life of God. It's not just because they weren't paying enough attention in their religious studies class. It's not a lack of of head knowledge. Paul's saying that this ignorance they have, it is an active thing. It's an active thing. They're willfully ignoring God. And here we see that Paul is a total master when it comes to understanding what makes us tick as human beings. Because it's actually the orientation of our heart that affects everything else, what we think and what we do. The pastor Tim Keller says this, what the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. In other words, what the heart wants, the mind can very easily justify. And the behaviours follow from that. This ignorance of God that Paul is talking about here is really deadly serious. Because verse 18 tells us they are separated from the life of God. These people don't have a share in eternal life with God. Why? Because they've hardened their hearts against him. Now as Paul points out, if you live and think as a non-Christian, then you can expect certain results. We've talked about the causes of that old way of life. What about the results then? As Paul says, they give themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And it's not hard, is it, to to find examples of impurity in our culture. Uh, The word Paul uses here for impurity doesn't just mean sexual impurity. It would include that but it's actually much wider than that. It means moral uncleanness. And this indulgence, it seems, has absolutely no limits. One translation says they have an insatiable desire for more. And I think this captures it really well, this idea that it's a continuing desire for more and more sinfulness. An appetite that just can never be satisfied. That's what Paul is describing here. And that resonates with us, doesn't it? Whenever we look at the world around us, we can see that that actually lust and greed and envy and selfishness, all of this impurity is affirmed very often by our culture. I don't know what your particular workplace is like, but it's almost guaranteed that at least some of this will be in evidence where you work. Attitudes of selfishness and greed... It might be an intense jealousy over career opportunities. Somebody might say, well, why did that person get the promotion and I didn't? Why did she get to work on that project and I didn't get it? In our politics, we, we see it now very, very constantly, words that are harsh and divisive and bitter, political parties that are entirely dysfunctional, And we saw actually just this week, tragically, decisions that are made that are totally against God's law and his ways and the sanctity of life. When we turn on our TVs, we're bombarded with the message that it's okay to pretty much sleep with whoever you want, as long as there's consent. And the list goes on and on and on, indulging in all kinds of impurity. But the reality is that we don't have to look just at the world out there to see this, because often when we look at our own hearts, we can see this uncleanness. We see this uncleanness. Here's the pattern, according to Paul. A hardened heart leads to futile thinking, which then in turn affects a person's behavior. And it leads to all kinds of sin. Now, why does Paul mention all of this? Is Paul just happy to sit on the sidelines and point a finger at the non-Christian world and say, look at, look at these guys, look at the behavior that's going on here. That's awful, but at least we're not like that. If we're Christians, we're not like that. Well, no, that's, that's not really what Paul's saying here. In fact, the reason that he's sharing this with his audience in Ephesus is to warn them. It's to warn them against this kind of behavior. He says in verse 17, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. So clearly there's a very, very real danger here that as Christians we can be taken in uh, and go along into the old trap of believing and behaving as we used to. Uh, Just think back to a time whenever you weren't a Christian, before you You met Christ. Uh, Maybe you were trapped in a particular pattern of sin, or of guilt, or of fear. And you couldn't overcome any of that by yourself, could you? There's nothing that you could do to overcome that old sin. Because the Bible says that we're captives enslaved to sin. Now I realize that for some of us we maybe became a Christian at the age of five or six, and so I'm not saying that you lived a totally scandalous life on the playground of your nursery school. It's probably not what happened. But you were still born into sin. You were still born a sinner. And then there came a moment, perhaps in just one moment, or all all at once or gradually over time, but there came a moment when Jesus rescued you from that old way of life and that old pattern of sin. And if you like, he's taken the, the key of your prison cell door and he's unlocked it. And he's brought you out into the sunshine. And as Richard Kogan says, we begin to realize in the light of the sun, just how filthy we have become. A bit like Oleg Gordievsky, we're able to look back in light of the new identity that we have and see how dark and destructive our old ways of life are. And so now, with this new life, we want to please Jesus. We want to be pure like him. And please him. But we know, don't we? We know that we don't always get this right. We don't always get this right. Because there are moments in our new life with Christ where we just want to wallow in our old habits. We want to go back to maybe our gossip and our backbiting or our envy of other people or our lust, whatever that might be. And effectively what we're saying is, Lord, on the one hand, I want to live a pure life like you in light of this new identity. But on the other hand, I still want to wallow in my sin. I want to go back into that old prison cell. Maybe this morning, even or today, we need to take some time to confess to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that my my new life, my new identity doesn't shape everything that I do none of us i suspect could say that we're totally free from that old way of life but wonderfully there is grace and there is forgiveness and there is mercy for us if we just turn back to the lord jesus and say lord i'm sorry for what i've done and i want to embrace this new life with you that then is the old way of life it's the old way of life what about the new way Paul says in verse 20, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. I had some teachers at school who were really, really passionate about their subjects. I remember my biology teacher, for example, uh, used to teach us about all sorts of things, about the life cycle of a frog, uh, about osmosis, about the makeup of cells. And to be honest, some of that stuff was was quite interesting. Some of it was useful. But it was all a bit abstract. It was a bit abstract. Because to be honest, if I ask myself, what really does the life cycle of a frog have to do with my own life? The answer is not very much. Now look, I'm not saying that if on Monday morning, if you're in biology class studying for your GCSEs, please do pay attention. I'm not saying don't pay attention. But the reality is that a lot of the information that I learned at school, it didn't shape my identity or transform who I am or change the course of my life forever. It didn't do any of those things. And all of the language that Paul is using here in these verses, it's the language of a school. If you like, it's the school of Christ. He says, you learned, you heard, you were taught. And if you're here this morning and you've become a Christian, the reality is that it's not a matter of just learning some new information and getting some head knowledge. No, you've been given a totally new way of life. A new way of life that transforms your destiny and your identity forever. The old way of life, Paul says, is characterized by darkened thinking and falsehood. But the new way of life is characterised by truth, the truth that is in Jesus. Instead of ignorance of God, we have knowledge of God. And in this school, as John Stott says, Christ is the substance of the teaching, and he is himself the teacher. And more than that, he's actually our friend who is with us. In fact, this is one of the only times in the book of Ephesians that Paul doesn't use the word Christ to describe the Lord Jesus, he actually uses the word Jesus. And some of the commentators will tell us the reason for this is because he's emphasizing the humanity of Christ. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. Why is that important? Well, I think what he's trying to say here is that God came to us himself as a man, to live among us, to show us what it means to be truly, fully human to die the death we should have died and to, to rise again. You see, God could have just sent down a hard drive with all the information that we need to know about him and said, there you go, learn this stuff. But that's not what he did. He sends his own son to show us what it means to be righteous. And to die for us. And as Bible-believing Christians, we need to remember that we are saved not by an abstract idea, but we are saved by a person. Sometimes we speak about the saving knowledge of the gospel. And that's great. That's wonderful. We need to know all of the doctrines. But we also need to remember that we're saved not by this abstract doctrine, but by Jesus himself, by a person After all, Jesus says about himself, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Truth, then, is a person. It's Jesus. Paul goes on to say in verse 22, You were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. So this is the new identity that you've been given in Christ, if you are a Christian. But now he says you've got to put off your old self. Just as Oleg Gordievsky uh, discovered the freedom that people had in Denmark, so we too have the freedom and the joy and the blessing uh, of being in Christ. And with this new identity then comes a new way of life. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with the Tough Mother run. It's a bit like a normal run, but the difference is that you intentionally get covered in dirt, head to toe in mud. I want you to imagine just for a moment that you've done one of these runs on a Saturday morning, and you've finished your run, and you're totally covered head to toe in mud. And then you remember that you have your cousin's wedding to go to. But you don't have enough time to get changed or anything, so you just think, okay, I'll... I'll, jump in my car, I'll get to the wedding, I'll be there on time. And so you do that. And you arrive at the church, and you go down and you take your seat. And you're a bit surprised to find that every eye in the church is on you. Now, of course, none of us would ever do this, would we? We would never do this. You'd be absolutely mortified. Because at a wedding, you know it's a formal event, you want to look your best. You don't turn up in old, dirty, running clothes. Paul is effectively saying here we have been given a new identity a new identity and so we need a new outfit to match and this is the part where we need to take off the old dirty clothes the sinful habits and behaviors that we used to have and we need to put on some new clothes but the next question then is well how do we go about doing this how do we actually do that Because we know that whenever we take off our old, muddy clothes, we put them in the washing basket, and somehow, miraculously, they appear clean. I don't know how that happens, but they appear clean. But what about us? What about us and our sinful habits? Well, Paul goes on in the rest of the passage to talk about specific ways in which we can put off the old way of life, and we're going to actually look at this a bit more in detail next week. But he also talks elsewhere in Romans chapter 8 about the need to put our sin to death. Romans 8 verse 13 says this. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You will live. Now the old-fashioned word for this process is mortification. It's just a word that means to put to death something. Uh, the old um, Puritan pastor John Owen said this. He said, cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And we must remember that early on in the passage, there's a serious warning here from Paul. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like them because they're separated from the life of God. This is the very real cost of just going on, In old sinful patterns, we need to be aware of the spiritual reality of sin in our lives, of the draw that there is to go back into that old prison cell, to wallow in the old habits of life that we have, that we once had. And when we face that temptation to do that, we need to remind ourselves that we are actually new people, we've got a new identity because we're children of God, we're not prisoners of sin. Now, so far we've mentioned that there is something active for us to do. We need to put off the old self, Paul says. But here in verse 23, we also find something that must be done to us. Something that's done to us. He says, you were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Now, this is really important because it prevents us from thinking that Everything is all on us. It stops us from thinking that, okay, I need to pull up my socks and get some willpower and I'll just put off the old self and it's all on me. Thankfully, this isn't the whole story. There is a real sense that we need to put off old sinful habits. But whilst we're doing that, we're also being made new. We're being made new. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. He's changing us. Uh, He's renewing our thought patterns. And one of the ways that he does this is through his words. Because we know that the Bible isn't a self-help book that makes us into better people. But actually it's a spirit-filled book designed to make us into new people. That's what the Bible is. But this can actually only happen whenever we give time to the Holy Spirit to renew us, to change us. And when we meditate on God's words and allow the Holy Spirit to totally transform our faulty thinking patterns. Paul says you've got to put off the old self, but you're also made new. Then in verse 24 he says we're to put on the new self. To put on the new self. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. <laughs> Why is Paul so preoccupied with putting on the new self? Is it because he wants the church to be a nice group of people doing nice things to each other? Is that what Paul is aiming for here? No, he says in verse 24, we were created by God to be like God. And I want to say three things very briefly about this challenge to to put on the new self. Firstly, this putting on of the new self, it is new creation. It's new creation. It's not a self-help fix. And this is where Christianity is radically different to any other lifestyle or philosophy that you'll ever come across. You can go into Waterstones in Belfast, uh, the bookshop there, and you can look at the self-help section. And there are all sorts of books that will tell you uh, that you have a problem and you need to fix it yourself. So that problem might be that you have, one of the books recently is a dirty house and you need to clean it in order to have a clean mind. Or you have a body that's maybe a bit flabby and you need to, to, to do some workouts in order to be your best self. But all of these the self-help books will say, you have a problem, you need to fix it. This is not the message that Paul is saying here. No, he says, you are a new creation. You've been made new, and so you need to act like it. This is a new identity that's been given to you as a gift. It's not something that you can ever earn. It's not something you deserve. But it's a gift. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Secondly then, this is a responsibility. It's a big responsibility. We've been created by God to be like God, to reflect His character and His nature and His holiness. And this goes right back to the start of chapter 4 when Paul says, Live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's a very high calling. And so we, we need to live in a way that's worthy of that. And I think this is a message actually that's very challenging to us in our culture. I think it's challenging to all Christians everywhere. But I wonder if you were to go onto the streets of Belfast today and ask a hundred people, "What do you think about Christians?" I wonder what they would say. I'm sure some of them might say, "Well, Christians are hypocrites, uh, they're self-righteous. They may even have stronger words than that. But I think that some people would say, "Well, Christians, they're the people who don't do fill in the blank. They don't get drunk, or they don't swear, and they certainly don't smoke. They don't do that. There are certain behaviors and habits that they don't do. And of course, Paul is very clear here. There are things that we are not to do. We need to put off the old self. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't stop there. As well as putting off the old self, we then need to take the next step and put on the new self put on the new self. We're to be new people who don't just stop doing bad, sinful things, but actually start doing righteous, good things. And I want to ask you this morning, are you guilty, and am I guilty, of maybe only doing half the work? Of forgetting that we need to not just take off our old clothes, but actually put on the new clothes? As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We need to put off the old and put on the new. Finally, it's also a huge privilege. It's a huge, huge privilege. The calling that we have means that we've been adopted into God's family. Chris earlier on was reading from Ephesians chapter 1. And if you read that chapter at the very beginning, you'll find this amazing list of blessings and privileges that God has given to us. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. All our sins have been forgiven. We've been called and chosen and predestined to have an amazing inheritance with God forever. This is a huge privilege. Yes, it's a responsibility, But first and foremost, it is a huge privilege. As we close, we have an opportunity today to praise God and to thank God for this amazing, wonderful privilege that he's given to us. That he's rescued us from this old way of life. And the question is, if that has happened, if God has rescued us from that old way of life, why would we ever want to go back to that? Why would we want to go back into the prison cell again and wallow in that old way of life? We've been adopted into God's family. And so let's pray now that that God would help us to put off the old way of life and to put on the new. To put on the new because we are children of God and we're no longer slaves to sin. Let's pray.